This is the Blueprint Podcast, bringing you the latest in cyber defense and security operations from top Blue Team leaders. Blueprint is brought to you by the SANS Institute and is hosted by SANS Senior Instructor John Hubbard. And now, here's your host, John Hubbard. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to a very special season of the Blueprint Podcast. This season, we're walking through chapter by chapter the 11 strategies of a world-class cybersecurity operations center. And so far, we've covered three different chapters, chapter zero on fundamentals, chapter one on knowing what you're protecting and why, and chapter two in our previous episode on giving your SOC the authority it needs to do its job. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be covering structuring your SOC. It's going to be everything from the org chart to tiers versus tier lists, uh, the room physical versus virtual socks, shifts, 24 by 7, file the sun, all sorts of good stuff. And I know we're going to have some spirited conversation on this one. So this should be a really, really exciting one to get into. So hello again to our esteemed author team, Ingrid Parker, Carson Zimmerman, and Catherine Nerler. Uh, are you all ready to dive into this one? Let's Can't do it. wait. Uh, I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> so strategy three, the title we have here is build a SOC structure to match your organizational needs. So why this chapter in the book, right? We got to start out with why did it make the cut? So um, why is this a, a very important thing for everyone to consider? Yep. So again, going back to that idea of we're, we're throwing everything up on a whiteboard, we're trying to figure out what we need to talk about. Obviously, there's tools, there's technology, there's people. But a lot of that comes together in how you put all of these elements in place, you know, and so thinking about that mission aspect, thinking about um, the culture of your environment, you know, are you remote? Are you uh, somebody that still comes into an office? Are you global? Are you local? Are you big? Are you small? All of these pieces really are going to impact what your SOC looks like from an organizational model perspective, and what you consider to be the functions that you include, what you choose to outsource, whether you're 24-7, all those pieces are in there. Um, and so we really just wanted a place to have all of those conversations and uh, think about kind of how SOCs have evolved over the years, what those structures look like, what are best practices that maybe a decade ago, we would have said, oh yeah, this is absolutely what we should do. And now thinking about, no, we're in a, we're in a slightly different place. We actually want to organize a little bit differently. We want to think a little bit differently. And so we wanted to, to bring all that together and just set it up as a, a set of discussions. And like everything that we talk about, uh, it depends on your organization. Um, so we tried to put a lot of information in here to just give you things to think about and to consider as you're deciding what's important to you. So the, the very first section of this chapter, 3.1, is called drivers for choosing a SOC structure, right? Uh, what are some of the most important things that people should be thinking about when choosing how to actually formulate the team? Well, I think the easiest one is how many people you have for the team. What are your resources? You know, So if you're a very, very small, you might be just part of a person or part of a few people. Or if you're a giant, I mean, that's certainly a, a, a big driver. And what do you hope to be? You know, so maybe you start out small and you you plan to grow and someone's given you a budget, but how does that look over time? So that that's where you start, I think. Yeah, that's going to be a, a enormous factor. I know I, I talk for, you know, to teams that are really, really large, have all the pieces and it's individualized roles all the way down to I am the entire IT and security team, right? And that's going to have a big uh, dependency on, on the different things that you're actually able to take on and how you're going to format the team, where they're going to sit and really all of that stuff. 
Um, so one of the things we should probably start off talking about here is what are the different ways you can actually organize a SOC team? Uh, you have some of these things listed here, ad hoc, distributed, centralized, federated. Could you give us like a quick rundown of just some of those words and, and how they, uh, you know, what they mean in terms of a SOC organization so that we are clear about them as we go through the rest of this episode and reference them? So when you're when we were thinking about this, we recognized that at the, the very kind of smallest level, there are people that do SOC functions, even if they're not called a SOC. Most companies have some sort of security that you are trying to do, even if a lot of that is outsourced through, you know, you're, you're using software as a service. And so you're not maybe doing it yourself, but there's almost always somebody that is, would be responsible if there was an incident and you would need to do some response for it. And so that's what we're calling kind of that ad hoc or security as an additional duty. These are these very small pieces where you don't have a formal SOC name, but you're still trying to do some of the security elements in other parts of the organization. Um, then you get into a few things that we call like distributed, centralized, federated. Um, these are different ways of, you know, formalizing the SOC name. But if you're doing a distributed SOC, again, you may still be doing some other duties, but you acknowledge that there's a connection between the people who are doing the SOC elements um, and are, you know, chartered to do those types of things within the organization. Centralized SOC is what we think about when we think of a traditional you know, in quotes, SOC. It is a set of people. That is your primary duty. That's your set of responsibilities. Um, you may be physically located together. You may be virtual, but it's a SOC for an organization um, with that set of responsibilities for the, the modern protection defense, those types of things. Um, federated is uh, goes back to a little bit about what we were talking about in the previous strategy in terms of... Um, Socks that maybe support different business units or different parts of your organization, um, rather than being a single sock within your organization. And often these will be peer organizations. So it's not that one reports to another, but they need to be sharing information across. That's different than a coordinated or hierarchical sock where there will be um, kind of a, a sock above those organizations that has a level of responsibility for bringing things together. Um, you know, if you're looking at a coordinating SOC, this is what you get with a lot of um, like large business, large government organizations. Um, doesn't necessarily direct those day-to-day -day activities, um, but is you know providing guidance across the different organizations. And we differentiate that from your hierarchical SOC, which uh, tends to be more involved in the day-to-day -day operations. So it's a lot of terms. We've got all of these in the book, but it really is just trying to acknowledge that there's so many different ways that you can. Uh, call your SOC different names. And as Catherine was stating, a lot of this has to do with just the size of your organization, um, as well as the structure of your organization. Great. And so I know there's a chart in here and, and the way that you spoke through them. So just so the listeners know, it's generally like from what you said, first to last, it's kind of like growing larger, larger, larger is typically yep. how these things end up landing. Um, what I was curious about is how is this section changed and evolved versus the first version? Is there anything that, you know, as you went to lay this out, had to be significantly ripped up or, or are we seeing socks, you know, trend in one direction where they weren't maybe 10 years ago? Uh, anything around that? Well, I think we'll get into some of this, you know, when, when I originally wrote the first edition, I had, as Ingrid intimated, the traditional centralized sock in my mind. And I spent 
a lot of time talking about that's the only way to do it. And um, I have feelings about this. A lot of people have feelings about this. Um, And it's born out of the notion that, as we've said many times already, and we'll say many times more, the folks that are doing security operations need to be in sync. And they need to be talking to each other and collaborating constantly. And one of the themes that you'll hear from me a couple times just in this episode is when you don't do that, trouble ensues, teeth gnashing ensues, tears ensue, people leave, all these bad things. So, but on the flip side of it, you know, we've come to recognize that a lot of people can't do it that way or they can't do it perfectly, or, you know, they have to outsource, they have to do a managed service provider, or they're, they're too big to do that. And they need to be to follow the federated or hierarchical approach, or, you know, how do we spend more time talking about how does a coordinating or national SOC show up? And how are their roles different? And, and it's actually interesting, because, you know, one of going back to the, the topic of tension from uh, the previous chapter, they're in the earlier days of these national and coordinating socks in a lot of situations, not all, but in a lot of situations, they showed up and defaulted to the way that their underlings, I'm going to use air quotes, their underlings would show up. They wanted to look at raw data and raw alerts. And it's like, hey, your role is different. So one of the genesis is, uh, I hope I'm using the right word, of this kind of rebuilt and reorganized strategy is how do we talk more about those different uh, models? And you can thank Catherine uh, uh, and Ingrid both for beating me over the head when we first came together and talked about second edition is, hey, Carson, you can't just speak from the soapbox about some of this. They said, okay. So here we are. Yeah. And, and so some of my argument was about why these giant coordinating socks uh, maybe shouldn't have be centralized is it comes down to context. The farther away you are from where a business unit is and where the data is, the less context you have. And so there's a lot of centers out there who try to pull in all the data into the world, into one place, and they think they're going to come up with something um, intelligent or they're going to come up with the next incident when they're missing the context of what's normal in a particular environment and every network's different. So some ephemeral ports might be used for, you know, a certain set of applications in one business. And that's a hack in another organization. That's actually an adversary coming through. And that context is what um, helps us delineate that. And the bigger you get, the less context you can have. And that's when those distributed um, kinds of movements need to come in and functions. That's my argument, Carson. I and 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 I've been I've been you know preaching that gospel. Uh, yeah, you do for to years, be fair. right? Um, you yeah. can't just have like in an, in a in a national government. I don't care if you're the United States or or a, or a country of two million population. You're not going to have one sock do it all for a gigantic constituency. And that's how we got some of these other models. That's right. Yeah, that te- that ten thousand mile screwdriver does not work. Oh. It's a ter- term that many of us are familiar with. Yeah, nuke it from space. That's another one we like to <laughs> yeah. throw around. 
<laughs> That's awesome. So yeah, context being the reason that, that drives a lot of this, right? It makes sense to me. Um, what I wanted to ask as a result of that is like, obviously it makes sense, right? The bigger you grow, the more impossible it is to track context on such an enormous um, environment. But uh, how small could an organization be and still have something like this make sense? Like what I'm thinking of when I ask that, I guess, is if there's a group that's maybe it's not a big organization, but there's been a lot of M&A going on and like things are divesting and being added back in. Is that a situation where you might want to switch into multiple different security groups since everyone's going to kind of have their own institutional knowledge as everyone kind of mixes and matches? Oh, yeah, I think it makes a in those cases, it can make a lot of sense, but what I've also seen is those organizations need to understand the business plans for that that merger or that other pieces because in a lot of cases there may be they may be trying to bring the IT together. So if they're going to keep separate systems, if they're going to keep separate data, it works fine if you want to keep kind of separate socks and then figure out how to coordinate and share amongst those. But if there's a plan for consolidation of your infrastructure, your data, your user groups, all of those types of things, then your SOC needs to be following that as well, because otherwise you're going to end up with a very disjointed picture of what you're looking at. Um, and, and it can become ugly pretty soon. Um, but if you are going to stay separate, um, the the benefit is you can actually be sharing intelligence, you can be sharing incidents, you should be sharing information across them. Um, and so that's something you want to be thinking about is you're, you're a silo, but you know how these partner organizations that are seeing things that could be really important to you. And that's a great place to go to get threat intelligence is those other organizations to bring back to yourself. Yeah. And I want to touch on that size question you said, John. Um, I'm going to, you know, Carson brought up a really great point at Black Hat. Uh, recently, where we were talking about you could be really, really small, you could be just, you know, one or two people if you're really small. And then you can start employing some of those great super users that are out there, you know, so those folks that really are interested in security, and also are pretty good at it, you know, they, 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 they know what's going on in the networks, and they're more technical. So uh, I thought he had an excellent point when he was talking about, you know, let's, let's, uh, let's bring them in and recruit them and br- make them, you know, unofficial SOC deputies. Yeah, SOC advocates, uh, yeah. you know, points of contact in various locations all around that can help you out with kind of, uh, you know, feet on the ground in specific locations and all of that. I think that comes up later as well. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. That's that's something that you can potentially leverage for your benefit, depending on, you know, if you don't have the, the size security team you need. Um, moving into the next section here, uh, 3.3. So it's called Centralized SOC Organizational Structures. Uh, this one is there's a lot of drawings in here. There's a lot of really good information. Um, can we get a quick kind of overview of the types of things that someone would look for kind of in this section and um, some of the key points you wanted to get uh, uh, through, through like what you were writing here across the, the various different amazing charts and everything that's included in this. We'll be back after a quick break. If you're enjoying this episode, then you're undoubtedly interested in building the strongest security operations team that you can. For those who want to go even deeper, did you know that SANS has not one, but two courses that cover security operations centers as well? For the leaders, managers, and directors out there, my co-author Mark Orlando and I offer 551, Building and Leading Security Operations Centers. This course covers building your team, your physical and virtual workspace, getting the right data into your tools, and then focusing on security priorities through everyday execution of important security tasks and building the best SOC team possible. For the technical practitioners out there, my course SEC 450, Blue Team Fundamentals, Security Operations and Analysis, is designed to cover everything you need to jump in being the best SOC analyst that you can be. 
We cover important data types, SOC tools, security logs, malware, analysis technique, automation, and much, much more. In addition, if you want to prove you can deliver the best on any security team, both courses have an accompanying certification available from GIAC. That's the GSOM for 551 and the GSOC for 450. Check out both courses and free demos available on the SANS website. You can get registered today for an in-person course at one of our many events, or go to On Demand and take either class anywhere at your own pace. Thanks for listening. Yeah, so I think in this section, we wanted to to put some examples down. You know, it's always great when you can look at something and at least say, here's a place to start. Um, this is another one of those spicy sections where we fought long and hard about like what goes in each column. Is it right? Is it wrong? <laughs> Nothing is right. Um, but we did want to say, you know, these are some things we've seen in organizations we've worked with that maybe you could group together. You know, so we've got um, like the first chart has incident uh, triage analysis and response in one area. And so that's kind of those core SOC functions of, you know, real-time alerting, you know, alert monitoring and um, incident investigation and those types of things. And then you say, okay, well, there's another section that's about like CTI and hunting and your analytics piece. You may not choose to, you may not have all of those, especially if you're a small organization, you may not choose to have all of those be in your SOC. Maybe your threat intelligence team is somewhere else, but we just wanted to show that there's a, an affinity between those groups and that if you are working in that space, you can, you know, consider bringing them together. Um, there's another section on uh, security architecture, engineering, administration. Um, and we've talked about this uh, a little bit, I think, in, in fundamentals that uh, that SOC engineering piece, you know, running your own tools, doing your integration, all of those, um, many of us advocate there should be at least some representation in the SOC. It should not be fully outsourced to an engineering team that has knows nothing about your mission. So we tried to just say that there's some some latitude to do that. And then the uh, the other part that we have in these kind of general overviews um, is recognizing all of the other functions that happen: uh, training, exercises, communications, uh, your metrics, those other pieces, and, and showing that they need to have homes within your organization. Um, one of the other things that's on these charts, and you're seeing in a dotted line on some of them, is uh, vulnerability management. And you know, we know that some socks have it, some socks don't. We debated on whether to put it on the chart, not put it on the chart. So we put it on the chart, but we put it in a dotted line. So it's like if your sock does this, you know, here's a home for it. Uh, if it doesn't, you can take it out. Um, but really, we just wanted to take all of the functions that we described in fundamentals and say, here's a way to think about them. Um, uh, moving from the abstract to an actual organization. And so you may have one or more people doing it. You may take them out, but at least it's a starting place uh, that you can point to and start scratching things out or, or moving your own boxes. Yeah. And some of this organization is about uh, things like what kind of ops tempo are we talking? And is uh, so if you're doing incident response, you, you just kind of have to be in that I'm going to be interrupted mode, right? So something's going to happen and you're going to have to do stuff. When you're a threat hunter or you're doing CTI, you really need that time to concentrate and figure out, okay, I need to think and I need to put together a strategy and be creative. And it's a different mindset. So um, separating out those functions, but not making sure there's really tight ties is very important. So we were debating, okay, how do you organize these things and how do you move them around? And then how do they coordinate across? 
Yeah, I think oh, there's um, some really useful charts, like in terms of you have them organized from small and large sock and like all the different categories and then subcategories and then the list of bullets for all of them. These things, I think, are, are some of the like really, really key parts of this chapter. If you haven't seen or that kind of thing and you're trying to build a sock, uh, a great resource for for what to go to and what you might want to be aiming for in a, you know, now and kind of medium and long term future state uh, as things grow. Uh, Carson, did you have something as well? Yeah, I just wanted to mention real quick, the figure that that Ingrid was talking about is figure seven. Um, you know, I don't think any of us have seen two uh, socks that are structured exactly the same. And that we just want to remind everybody that's the case here is, is we drew, I think, about four or so examples. Um, they're like snowflakes. I, I, we actually resisted the temptation to draw about 10 plus permutations because you're just going to end up filling pages and pages and pages. Um, with with pictures and what we also wanted to spend some time on is, is why are why do we do this right and why do we arrange things different uh, like this and it balances both you know what Catherine was talking about is is um, the need to focus the need to communicate and, and the the need to constantly iterate. Um, I'll also offer when things get really weird um, is when the sock has some other function that we didn't list in this chapter and in fundamentals kind of attached to the side of the of the sock like active directory or key management or you know patch management outside the scope of vulnerability scanning and what often happens and the reason why we didn't include those here is is that that tends to then draw the attention of the lead of the sock towards things that aren't really focused on finding you know people doing bad things in cyberspace and then responding to that and that's why you don't see a bunch of those other functions featured here yeah so this is the the more typical things and the things that we think kind of best align with uh the typical mission of the average sock right um and the the other the other thing i'll go into is i want to talk about sock engineering this is carson's gonna get on his soapbox for a second um one of the things that i've seen happen with successful socks and I see don't happen in folks in socks that struggle a lot is the ability to take the needs of the analysts, the people who are doing incident triage investigation and response and translate those to the requirements that are satisfied by engineering and the time scales at which those requirements are satisfied. Different socks have different approaches to this. Some have dedicated engineering functions. Sometimes engineering is a job of that role. I'll give you a very concrete example. There, I've run into more than a few socks where um, the people doing incident investigation um, also have some responsibility in improving tools or improving data collection. Um, and I could spend an hour, I won't, talking about all the permutations of that. What I will say, and we're going to probably talk a couple more times about today, is, is that every section of the SOC needs to have time built into their schedule and into their capacity for improvement. I don't mean training, um, although I do. What I'm referring to is, is building up processes, procedures, tooling, automation, etc. And you'll hear this. Uh, some people talk about the concept of agency. Um, some people talk, uh, use the word empowerment. Um, say what you will. The point is, is that every, this drives 
improvement and it drives investment and engagement. And that is absolutely critical. And I've seen socks, every permutation of pulling any of these major functions out, I've seen it and I've seen it go absolutely terribly for everyone involved. <laughs> absolutely. Like, just like, oh, you know, just people in tears because they can't do the most basic functions of their jobs. So to all of you listening, please don't take this stuff and put it elsewhere. If you can avoid it, trust me, it'll work out better when you bring it together if you can. I'll give you a real example of this engineering problem because I've seen it. Actually, I get calls you know, in this question a lot. So uh, a, a group, I won't say who it is, um, actually has their engineering outside, completely outside of the SOC, uh, and they're responsible for choosing a SIM. So the SIM they chose was one that followed the basic requirements that the SOC had handed them, but they weren't able to then test it for actually what it does. So they handed it to the SOC. They had tested that you could turn it on, you could plug it in. And so all of that part worked, but it didn't do the correlation rules the way that the group wanted. It was an off-brand, by the way, that they had chosen. It's one that you know we don't hear a lot. And so um, the SOC was left with this tool that was bought by engineering based on requirements that was able to be turned on. So it happens all the time. Um, so to Carson's point, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I really really love that point. I've lived that. <laughs> I teach that. Uh, yes, I've I've definitely had those points in my career where they're like, "Here, John, we bought a new tool. The vendor says it's great." I'm like, "Oh, they do, yeah. huh?" <laughs> it, 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 I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna preach just a little bit more, and then I'll shut my trap. Thank you, Catherine, because that that is one of the examples I have in my mind. And people often say, "Well, you should just be able to write all the requirements down, and then have some other engineers, you know." satisfy those requirements. And there's, there's a, there are many flaws in that logic, even though I appreciate where people are coming from when they say that there are multiple flaws. One of them is the notion that the people who are in the best position to deliver a requirement are the ones who have experienced the pain of the solution or, that they're trying to address. And I see it every time. If you haven't lived the pain, at least a little bit, your understanding of how to respond and meet that pain is orders of magnitude poor. And then the other, one of the other flaws in the logic, there's actually two more. One of them is um, that you're going to have time to write them down with enough detail that someone who doesn't understand that area is going to be able to pick it up and know what to do. And, that is cyclical because as soon as you're done defining the requirement, the requirement has changed. And this is what drives everyone absolutely batty when you've got ops like way over here and then engineering way over here and you put a brick wall between them is, is that you're, you're iterating so quickly you have to. Um, and, and you just, you can't, you can never catch up and everyone, everyone is sad in that situation. And then, um, you know, the, the third in, and that's kind of, a, um, you know, building up the first two is, is, is that even if you do have good requirements written down, and even if you do have people who are faithfully executing against them, um, when you, uh, you know, the engineering org will end up kind of having their own priorities and their priorities will stray from the needs of the operator and it causes massive contention and massive arguments 
Um, and I've, I've not yet seen someone do it effectively when they're way separated like that. So um, rant over. <laughs> and we could probably go on for a lot more about some of the benefits of like having people with scripting skills, with, you know, the ability, like all of these skills that might reside you know, in a large organization in another place. If you bring those into your SOC, you can change the speed at which you're doing things, the, you know, how fast you can iterate everything else. Um, but we know we have a lot of other content we want to get to, too. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, as you were saying that, I was thinking like uh, kind of a comparison here is like, I don't know of any other jobs where they're heavily tool reliant and the people who use those tools would tell someone else what tools they need and hope they get it right. 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 It's like you don't have construction workers describing the hammer they'd like to buy to someone else and hoping <laughs> they come back from Home Depot with the right hammer, like artists saying like, oh, can you please go th get this brush for me? Like you pick your own tools because you know what you need. Right. And if you uh, make that gap there there's just it's a point of failure with an incredibly huge like point uh, of pain for changing if you get it wrong that it's just there's, there's too much consequence there so there is there is one counterpoint i'll offer just on balance and that is is in a sock particularly larger socks ones that have very high ops tempo we need to be very thoughtful about not asking one person to do all of the engineering and then all of the alert triage and all of the alert investigation um, they've got to, as Catherine stated earlier, um, have time for focus. And when you overload one person with too much, um, you can you can backfire. Yeah, everything falls apart if you uh, yeah rely on one person to get everything right. Uh, you know, you got to distribute kind of all that work, which leads us actually quite well into the next section here, which is how do we lay this out to kind of get this right? One of the big factors being just like how is alerts or how are alerts and how is work kind of moving through the system and one big way of doing that of course is the tiered sock versus mm. the tier list sock right mm. so that's one of the next things uh, kind of uh, attached in this chapter in 3.3.4 uh, to tier or not to tier right uh, i'm just going to throw that one out there where should we start that discussion and what are your thoughts on that question well we should probably first define what we mean by tiering for people who are not familiar before we express our passions about this. So, <laughs> yes. so tearing, tearing in a sock comes from concepts and IT operations that have been with us for well over 20 years. And the idea is, is, is goes back to the funnel is, is that you have the most alerts and the most cases hit the least experienced people. They do some cursory work. And as you move along the chain, um, you know, you escalate from one tier to the next and, and at the top of that pyramid, if you're really big, you might have, you know, you might have more than two tiers. You might have a third tier. Um, and there is both merit to this um, and there's a lot of naysayers. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why even using the word tier is problematic. And I will pause so I was very passionate about this as we were working on the book. Um, I think there there are benefits and, and drawbacks to every one of these models. Um, but we did, this is a, a change, I think, from first edition where there was more emphasis on the tiered model. And I really wanted to emphasize that I have seen small organizations, large organizations, people be really, really successful with a tierless model. And I think that not only does it help operationally, but it's really important for the growth of the people in your organization. 
Because instead of your junior analysts, you know, looking at the same thing day in, day out, never getting to see how it moves through the path, never getting to kind of stretch their skills, always having that ceiling that they're hitting, and then having that alert burnout of just seeing the same thing day after day. If you can move to a model where they have more opportunities to be challenged, you know, with things they haven't seen before or see it through to conclusion, you, you just are able to build a set of skills um, and help those people grow and you have better retention and you have better outcomes. And even if they, maybe it takes a little bit longer for them to do things, they learn as they go and you actually become more efficient over time and you create better partnerships amongst your junior and your senior analysts. There's no longer this line of, oh, I'm not that level yet. You know, I can't do this type of thing. And so you then get senior analysts that are much more excited about, hey, I'm going to help you with this because you know, you're, you're working through this process and this is a cool, oh, you just found that, that really cool thing. Let me help you with it. So I am very passionate about the tier list model. Um, but I do recognize that there are challenges to that as well. So this, this is one where we went back and forth a lot of what to call it, how much to emphasize, which, which part of it. Yeah. And, uh, so I'll just offer some of my own experience. I've been in both, uh, and the more rewarding environments for me personally were the tearless environments. So, you know, you're the one on call, an incident comes in, you handle it from cradle to grave. So you're the one putting the documentation. And the benefit of that kind of model is you have one person who has the continuity through the whole thing. Um, I've been in a tiered model as well, and I've set up tiered models for large organizations. And it is tough to get that first line, the to the ones that are sitting there you know, passing on alerts. They see an alert, they pass it on to a tier two who will then go handle the incident. Um, those folks are at least happy. However, the 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 level two folks are, are a lot more happy because now they don't have to worry about all those uh, things coming in. They got someone else that are filtering out the noise and they can really focus on the more advanced things. So I've seen it work both ways. Um, it just depends on, you know, the environment, I think. And like Ingrid said, you really want to mentor that that tier one, you got to spend a lot of time with because you will lose them. Uh, like there's no tomorrow. If all they're doing is pushing buttons all day long for years, they they just won't stick around for that. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll, now that I described what tiers are, I'll also take opinion and uh, a position. Um, and no surprise, you know, I'm in agreement on two levels. Number one, I recommend using or recommend against using the terms tier one, tier two, tier three, because it creates an artificial hierarchy and quite frankly is not an inclusive approach. And it puts people in bin and it puts people in boxes and it's just the wrong way to start out. Um, and then the the position I'll, I'll also take is everyone's got to feel like they've got agency and empowerment. And the way, depending on how you big, how big you are, that might look like the people doing triage might also be the people doing investigation of an incident all the way to the end. Um, and or they might pe be the people doing alert tuning. They might be doing some uh, uh, alert triage and enrichment and filtering automation. They might be building notebooks. They might be doing all kinds of different stuff. And that all strays from the traditional notion of tier one. As a matter of fact, and I've said this before on stage and I'll say it again, I think the one of the few things, if anyone were to say something is dead in security operations, the only thing I would say, one of the few things I would say that is truly dead is the notion that you're going to have tier one analysts, all they're doing is triage and nothing else. That idea is unsound 
And I think we're all in violent agreement that that idea needs to go away. The question is, is, is how do you also compensate and deal with, hey, you've got junior analysts coming in. How do you differentiate their roles and responsibilities or their duties um, and, and from people who are more experienced? And how do you do things like quality control? And how do you leverage automation in all of this? Because the ideal situation is getting rid of, you know, as much as you can from the very mundane routine. You've seen it before, like, oh, my goodness, do I need to see this alert again type of thing. So how much of that can you make go away so that even for those people who might be spending more time, you know, focused on the triage, um, you know, they're not not fighting the same battles every day. And you're seeing their analysts are definitely not seeing the same things every day. I'll also mention a little bit of hyperbole. I've heard from people, people say, oh, tier one's totally dead. Let's parse that out for a second. Again, pun intended. What's dead is what I talked about before is the people that are just smashing alerts. Um, however, people say, oh, we've completely got rid of our tier one. I think it's more appropriate to say, you still have people in the SOC who are taking incoming signal and figuring out what to do with it. That's triage. You still have people doing triage. What's different is, is they may not have as many alerts and that they're much more intelligent. So when people say we've gotten rid of tier one entirely, I think that's being a little over dramatic. What I would rather fall back is to what we've been saying for the last seven minutes. Yeah, and <laughs> let me let me add to this because I'm dealing with some of this right now as we speak. Um, some of these socks have outsourced that tier one, so it does still exist. It's not dead. They've outsourced it. They've hired hired a company to do it for them, and then as that company finds something, you know, it comes to the tier two, and they just have one or two incident responders that are tier two, something like that. And I'm sorry, I still use tier one, tier two. I'm stuck in that. Yeah, um, it's an easy so way. My bad. This was, and this was one of the pieces of controversy that we had is originally when we first started talking about second edition, I'm like, well, oh, just say tier one. It's easy to understand. And, and Ingrid and Kath were like, don't, don't be like that person. So here we are. Yeah, um, here we are. And it's hard to talk about it otherwise. It, it, it is. So one of the other points to counter some of this is, is I've also encountered socks who take it to the far extreme and say, we're going to tune the alerts down so much that they're so high in fidelity, we can we can page people on their phone and, and we don't ever have to do anyone doing any triage. And that concerns me as well because they've, they've ascended this curve and then gone down the other side of that curve where they're also being ineffective because I you know, in spite of all of the machine learning, all of the data science, all of the filtering, all of the AI, and all of the buzzwords we've thrown at this, there's still a large number of detections where the results, it takes a human to pick out the ones that are interesting and fun and unusual or noteworthy. And I've not met many people who have gotten to the point where they can really eliminate the human from that entirely. They're on the road to doing that and they're constantly marching towards that, but that goalpost keeps moving. Yeah, so um, what I wanted to, to follow up with that tiered, uh, whether you tier or you don't tier, if you're gonna tier, what I would say is that you wanna make sure those are really soft lines, you know, that you can cross over into either way. So if you've contracted something out and I've seen like multiple contracts, like one contract for one, you know, for triage, another one for incident response, another one for threat hunting, like separate contracts entirely. It becomes super tough 
to go between the different contracts when you do things that way. So the compartmentalization, if you're doing tiering, is is not really a great way to go. So soft lines always. Right on. Yeah, I, I'm glad you all went into that kind of impassioned discussion. Uh, I feel the same way. Uh, I'm biased because I worked and I'm a product of a tierless sock. Um, the way I kind of think about this is I think most people get into InfoSec to do like challenging fun work, right? And if you're like, yeah. great, you did a whole bunch of t- tough stuff to get here. Now you push this button and that's the button you push all day. People are going to be like, um, I didn't get in here for this, right? And so people are going to want a bigger challenge than that. And I think very much depending on how you define your way your tierless you know, uh, situation or tiered situation works, um, you can go closer or further from that. But, you know, anecdotally, when I talk to students that are like, oh, I'm very unhappy with my sock job, it's those that don't have a big variety in their day, right? Absolutely. And they want to learn more and they feel like they've hit a glass ceiling and they're like, I can't get promoted. I'm stuck. I do this thing that's boring and horrible. And so guess what? I'm hitting the door, right? And I'm going to go find another job somewhere else. Uh, people want to keep moving, right? And that's kind of what I think is is uh, one of the big things to keep in mind when it comes to this. And you can do tiered socks, right? Where people are still able to learn and do all that fun stuff. Um, but I think that model, at least in a traditional sense, has been less oriented in that direction. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll refer people once again back to the book. You know, we were talking about section 334 here. We listed a whole list of stuff in, in terms of considerations, on to tier or not to tier and what you need to continue doing and how to empower the analyst and all that good stuff. And if, if we, if we talked through that, we'd be here for at least an hour. It's tough. It's tough to cut ourselves off. Yeah, yeah. And we get into a little more of this in the workforce section too. Yeah. Yeah. So let's say, you know, we're to the point where everyone probably agrees, right? That like, yeah, yeah, more variety is good. Learning is good and all of that. But we still have some grind work to get through. And, Mm. you know, how are we going to get that done? Right. Uh, Outsourcing is one of the other things that comes up in this section. Um, Could you speak a little bit about the things you might outsource, the ways you might outsource and those sorts of things, how that meshes with what we just discussed? So I'll, I'll jump in here. There's, um, you can outsource everything from a good portion of your SOC down to very specific things like, you know, we need somebody to go do malware analysis for us. And so, um, you know, you have organizations like MSSP, Managed uh, System, you know, Security Service Providers, that can provide uh, everything from kind of initial, you know, protection recommendations. They can do monitoring. They can really get engaged with what you're doing. You have, you uh, Managed detection and response, which is going to really focus on just a portion, uh, you know, going to be looking at certain data sources that you send to them, looking, really acting as that tier one coming in, looking and seeing what they're having, um, escalating ideally to you just a subset of the, uh, you know, events and alerts that are coming into your organization. You can have an incident response partner, you know, somebody who you have either full time or on call. So if something does happen, you immediately have somebody that you can bring in and they can be part of the investigations. Maybe they put different logging in place or they they help you with the response. Um, you can outsource for things like exercises, you know, uh, red teams, purple teams, um, tabletop exercises. You can bring people into those specific things. You can work with people who provide you CTI. You can work with people who provide you, like all of these different elements are possibilities. Um, and so thinking about what your team is really good at what skills do you already have in house? What skills do you not have in house? Where are you trying to grow people? What does your budget look like? Um, you know, if you're a smaller organization, then 
you might be looking at those MSSPs, MDRs, others as a way to really augment your your own staff if you only have a few people, um, because they can be 24-7. They're going to be able to see across multiple organizations. They're going to bring a larger um, set of knowledge into that space. If you're a large organization, you have a bigger stock, you may choose to just outsource some of those more specialty functions or have people on call for when you actually need them. So there's a lot of different ways to play. Um, but it really comes back to thinking about the functions that you have in the SOC, where you want those functions to reside, and what skills and capabilities you're able to have in-house, um, and then figuring out what you want to outsource from there. Um, and then I imagine we'll get into all the pros and cons of outsourcing and some of the challenges and all yeah. the, the ways that this beautiful system that I've just described doesn't work or ne- what you need to think about to make it work. So, yeah, that was my, my next question exactly is is one of the things I hear people often go to is like, all right, we've got a bunch of very talented people, but now they're getting bored with the basic stuff. Maybe we should outsource to the MSSP and make them our quote unquote tier one initial triage, whatever you want to call it. Um, what do you think about that as a way of kind of dealing with that basic work that isn't super exciting threat hunting APT type stuff? Is, is that a model that works well in your mind? Yeah, so I'll start there because I mentioned it earlier. Um, one of the, one of the downsides of, of um, sending that one out to outsource uh, the triage is the context. So those folks don't know your business environment; they don't know your mission. Um, so they are purely looking at uh, traffic and um, logs and that kind of stuff based on what they know, and you know, um, hopefully finding things. But they don't have that context. What I would say, if you're going to outsource the incident response portions of what you're doing, have at least one person in-house that understands whether they're doing a good job or not. If you can't measure that you've outsourced this thing and they're not finding anything or, you know, they're, they're, they're falling down on the job, you need someone who understands enough about incidents to, to be able to call them on it and to be able to have intelligence, intelligent conversations. Like, especially when you, if you have a major incident where you have to take down an entire network, you really need someone you know, that's on your side, that's in your company that really understands incident response. Any um, specific like advice on how do we verify that our MSSP is doing what we think they're doing? That might get into metrics a little bit. So we don't need to dive all the way in there, but like basic just sanity checks of like, are they catching stuff or is this something you kind of pick up from a pattern or is there like a good way that's like a standard, here's how you measure someone you've outsourced this to? Yeah, I think you can use some of the basic measures that you'd be using for yourself. So thinking about how many false positives are you getting? How many false negatives are you getting? You know, did you, um, maybe you've outsourced some of this, but you have a hunt team and the hunt team goes back and finds things and you're like, oh, we should have seen this as well. Why did you not do it? Um, you know, there's the, the good part about working with these organizations is you're going to have a pretty clear pattern of what they actually sent to you over time. And you should be able to look at them and say, okay, what did we get on day one? What did we get at the end of that contract? Are these different? Have they improved? Um, what's the speed they're coming in with? Uh, you know, is this actually making our operations better? So there, there, we can talk more about metrics, obviously, for a long time as well. Um, but there are ways that you can sit down and and be fairly consistent in how you measure the information that they are sending to you and whether it's actually effective for your organization. One of the, one of the ways I think about you know, the trade-offs and the pros and cons of outsourcing is actually using the same five buckets we talked about in strategy one, the five pillars of situational awareness and thinking about what is 
the MSSP that we're either already contracted to or thinking about, how are they going to change the calculus for some of that? Um, and it might be in ways we're not necessarily thinking about as their potential customer. Let me give you a couple obvious examples. An MSSP had better come in with a very strong understanding of the threat, right? They better be experts in it because if they're not really good on that and they're thinking about the threat specific to your industry or set of industries, like are you an oil and gas company? Are you a financial company? Are you a retailer? Um, one of the ways that they could potentially provide differentiated value is being aware of both the systems and the threat specific to your area. And, and that's one of the ways that, that turns some of that on their head. Because when we normally talk about MSSPs, the, one of the typical commentaries is, well, well they're not going to understand our business as well. Um, and, you know, that's very common. On the flip side, they might understand some of the threats against that business better. So there's a, there's some nuance here, you know, to consider. Um, one of the other things I think about when I think about outsourcing is what we talked about before earlier in the chapter is having the the parts of the security operations apparatus fit together, talk to each other, coordinate, etc. One of the other things that you might not be thinking of, um, but is also influential, which goes into strategy four. And that is, is let's say you've outsourced, uh, you know, your triage function. We're not calling it tier one, right? You've outsourced your triage function. All right. That was your number one way of building a pump into the sock. Now, what are you going to do to bring in junior talent and grow them? Yeah, all good points. Um, there's, I, I love the kind of threat centric way of looking at it. Uh, you know, you, don't necessarily have to look at it as, oh, I'm handing it off to someone that knows less than me. You could be finding someone that actually knows more than you and has considerably better context about the attacks, at least, that could be coming your way. And as long as you work with them, right, to understand, like, the internal context of your network, you may actually end up doing better than before, right? Exactly. So, right. Um, it could go either way, as long as you pick and choose carefully, have those conversations and nurture that communication between the groups. Uh, one of the other things I wanted to ask that's also in this chapter kind of right after this is the uh, notion of, of bringing an MSSP or really anything uh, for coverage 24-7, right? I know in the SOC mm -hmm. I previously worked in, it was a case of, well, we want to kind of operate 24-7. How are we going to do it? And at some times we had on-call shift. Other times you went to 24 by 7. We eventually went to a follow the sun model once we had geolocated SOCs kind of all around uh, Earth. And then, of course, you can bring an MSSP uh, in on that. So any thoughts on kind of how you approach making a decision on how much coverage you need and then which one of those options to go with? Yeah, I think this starts from just just a basic budget perspective. You know, we have some numbers in the book about, you know, it takes this many people over this much time, multiply that by salaries, and, and you get to a pretty big number pretty quickly. Um, and so that's just fundamentally where companies look at that and, you know, your, your finance person says, oh, no, you're, no, that's not in your budget. Um, and so that's, that's one of the reasons, uh, especially smaller organizations will start looking at some of this outsourcing because there's cost trade-offs to be made in terms of what they're looking for. Um, I think, you know, you mentioned a, a couple different ways to think about the, the ways that you might run 24 seven, um, you know, it's not an all or nothing, you know, so you might do extended shifts and just have somebody on evenings and weekends, or you might, you know, do, um, you might actually run 
you know, seven days a week, but just during the days or, you know, so there's other ways that you can use them um, to, to figure out what you want to do. But it, a lot of it just comes down to dollars. Yeah. And there's a lot of ways to implement it too. So I came from a small team that was 24 seven and you might ask, well, how would you, how in the world would you do that? Cause you need it, you, you know, un- unlike you don't really need just three people to make a 24 hour shift, right? You really need um, a lot more than that, but you can do like a, yeah, 24 seven on call kind of deal where you're getting pages for really important things. Like you would make, you would want to make sure you've tuned out false positives to the extent possible. So you're not getting paged every hour or you're not getting alerts every hour. Um, but you could set it up. So someone's on call for a week and then it switches to another person and rotate it that way. And that's 24 seven. So you have to define what you mean by 24 seven and what you're getting for those services for 24 seven. Um, some people go light on the overnight shift, like they're not doing a full, um, looking at alerts a hundred percent, you know, 24 seven. And then, you know, of course you have your giant socks that are actually sitting there with teams 24 seven. There's, there's a, there's a couple, a couple things to think about here that may not be obvious. One of them is imagine you've gone 24 seven, imagine you're even having someone, uh, you've outsourced alert triage and investigation. Uh, for 12 out of the 24 hours to another team. Let's assume they find something. Then what? Yeah. Right. Do you have IT staff also like other parts of the organizations? Your constituency have IT support on call or uh, also working at 2 a.m. your time? Because if they don't, why are you doing alert triage then? What's the point? Right. So I'm not, I'm not saying don't. I'm just saying think about it. Um, you know, one of the other things that folks who are approaching this, they think about, you know, how are we going to spend those resources, right? By the way, the ma- one of the magical numbers is 4.8 FTEs. It takes 4.8 people uh, working a 40-hour week to cover a single shift, including things like sick leave and vacation and whatnot. And then you never want to have one person on shift at any given time because, wow, oh, that stinks. Being the only person on shift, oh, that's so lonely. Um, it's soul crushing. So, um, so then you're saying, oh, if I want to be 24 by seven, that means I actually need to spend actually 15 FTEs to be 24 by seven, because you want to have a lead you want to have, and you want to have, uh, two junior analysts, whatever position they're in. That's a lot of headcount. And here's what people aren't necessarily thinking of is, is people often over index. I've got to look at every alert in 60 seconds. No, you don't. It's stop thinking like that. And here's why. Um, they're like, oh, we've got to see the adversary really fast. I get it. One of the things that I see happen so often is organizations are being as effective sometimes in doing hunting that is delayed by hours or even days than they are focusing in just on their neural time, alert, triage, and investigation. The point is, is think about your trade-off. Oh, I could spend 15 FTEs being 24 by seven, or I could spend five FTEs over here doing a really cool hunt program. And there's a very good chance you're going to find a lot more threats that way because that's the point. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways to slice this. Yeah. To Carson's point, if someone's been in your, if an adversary has been in your network for four weeks, then a few more hours isn't really going to do much to you there. 
<laughs> yeah, and I, I think you guys hit a lot of the the most important um, and and most commonly uh, stated objections I hear, or not objections, but like some objections, some comments, some struggles, challenges, that kind of thing. Twenty four by seven, you know, it it's not easy. It's expensive, uh, and it might not be necessary, right? And so uh, coming up with, do I really need to do this, or do I really just need an end result? And there's multiple ways to get there, and maybe there's a more budget friendly way of doing it, uh, and getting kind of creative about that can be a, a great way of kind of dodging some of those costs of literally running a 24 by 7 sock. Um, the other kind of thing brought up in this chapter is building the actual socket itself. Uh, could you speak a little bit about like, okay, I want to build a sock room. Uh, what do you think the requirements are that we're looking for in like, do we need a physical sock? How do I make that decision? And then if you're making that decision, like what am I putting in it? No windows. No windows. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I did that. <laughs> I lived that. Before we no windows, lower the lights. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, people often. I, I've literally seen socks that were like actually inspired by uh, your favorite sci-fi movie, and and people spend a lot of money on them. And I I get why that happens, right? It looks cool. It makes people feel great. It's good to show the executives once a year. There's a whole bunch of reasons to do that. But let's, I think we should first talk about what's the motivation? Why do we, why do we in, in the, you know, the year 2023, um, man, I've been doing this a long time. Um, why do we, why do we create these places? Um, and, and one of them is collaboration, neural time collaboration and situational awareness. And, you know, to this day, when I think about getting into the heat of a major incident, um, to this day, people still struggle with drawing a picture and other shared situational awareness of the battle space that other people in that virtual sock can share. So, so one of the things to think about here is, is like, let's really play this out. Um, there's many considerations like, I don't know about you all, but when I, when I talk to people who are really experienced have been doing this for a while, a lot of them don't want to move. So what are the ad advantages and disadvantages to demanding someone um, change their, their locations to work in a sock? There's a bunch of different pieces here. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, go ahead, or Ingrid. Oh, I was just going to say, and I think there's a, this goes back to what we've talked about. What is your business culture? You know, are you a organization where everybody else is still coming in? Are you fully remote at this time? Where do you need to go? And I think no matter where you're at, um, I love where Catherine started of, you know, and Carson were going with like, you don't need these, you know, dramatic spaces. Like analysts just want equipment that works. Like analysts will tell you, give them three to five monitors before you give them whatever fancy lighting situation you have in mind. Give them a mouse that's actually comfortable. Give them a good chair. Give them a standing desk if they're at home. Like Those types of basics actually go so far compared to any of the fancy stuff you might put into place. Um, and I think many of us have probably worked in socks that have these, like, these tiered rows and the big screens up front. And those screens end up having you know, some news source or some movie going on at 2 a.m. because that's actually all they're good for. Like, you know, see the, the pew pew maps of, you know, oh, the adversary was over here and now they're over there. Like, you know, oh, we're going to put up this dashboard and it's going to be great. And the only time this gets turned on is when they're doing like a presentation to some to some executive. Um, so I think no matter whether you're physical, virtual or anything else, go back to the analyst needs. 
you know, figure out how to make them comfortable with the things that they need to do, give them the tools, give them a budget, give them, you know, buy it for, for that physical space. Um, but this is one of those where going back to those basics is, is helps so much. Um, and then collaboration, which is if you have a sock in a physical location, make sure there's a conference room, make sure there's some place that they can go that is quiet, that is a way where they can do deep thinking. They can, you can get a team, you can have whiteboards, you can do those things. And if you are virtual, you know, set those spaces up. Like we, I, I work in a virtual team right now, just in our Slack, we have, you know, this, um, this room and all you have to do is you press a button, it opens up Slack, people drop in and out of it all day long. You know, it just you're creating these ways to be in more informal. We have, you know, a whiteboard session, you know, set of technologies. People are constantly creating diagrams in there and putting things up that people can see. So like figure out how to make collaboration work, figure out how to give them the basic tools and don't get so caught up in the actual, does it look really great? Well, yeah. And, and what I would say too is this isn't as much of a problem as it used to be when we were all just hardware but if you're hardware based, you know, um, you got to be able to ship equipment around and all this other stuff. So, yeah, you do really need to think about geographical location for at least some of them. And so hybrids seem to be the way a lot of businesses are going where they have some people that are at least live near, you know, a location. And then, you know, you can have some distributed um, doing some of the functions. Um, but if you actually have to touch hardware at some point, um you got to figure out how to get the hardware, whether it's shipped to you or you ship to it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was a perfect kind of a answer of the question I was going to ask anyway. It was like, what is the actual essentials in a, in a physical sock? Right. And I, I totally agree. Right. The collaboration, situational awareness, right. Those are the things that you really need to get the work done to make sure everyone has like zero friction from, oh, I have a question and I'm going to get that question answered because as soon as someone's like, oh, I have to open an you know, application, I have to walk across a room, whatever it is, that's when people start to just not do those things and then things can fall apart a little bit. Um, so whether it's virtual or physical, I think that's, that is exactly how I would describe uh, as well, you know, what we're aiming for here. Um, I, I want to add oh, yeah. one thing about the virtual piece. Um, I would like to call out when we talk about a sock where everyone is in person, there's a set of approaches that can work. And we talk about a sock where everyone is virtual. That's a separate set of approaches, kind of like what Ingrid was just and Catherine were both talking about. I want to make sure and call out the situation where it's a hybrid approach, where there are people who are in person who fall into certain patterns of behavior and they're not including the people who are remote. And we need to be really thoughtful about that because as soon as we start having people remote, our patterns need of, of how we collaborate and how we share need to shift. And that has second and third order effects on, guess what? You're not using your whiteboards anymore because every time you use a whiteboard, you're either having to have a camera on it or you're sending a picture of it or you're just not using it. So my advice to our, our listeners is, is think that out when you're putting this together and, and, and think out, Oh, we're going to have a shiny sock. And then I'm not going to be able to recruit senior analysts into that sock. Cause they don't want to, they don't want to move. And they want to sit at home with their 49 inch 8k monitor, because that's what, what, that's what they love. Right. And, and let's be clear folks, there's never enough screen real estate. I have 70 inches of screen <laughs> on my desk at home and it's not enough. 
It's never enough. <laughs> I'm waiting for the day that we can get a HoloLens like thing where you can just superimpose the windows kind of hanging anywhere in augmented reality. And then we can just get rid of screens altogether. Uh, anyone that wants to work on that, I'm buying it first. <laughs> I know. I, mean, I want there, 3D. Like... <laughs> I want to be able to pull it out, put it over here. and. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. No, screen real estate is absolutely one of those things that people never can get enough of, right? Um, what, what I wanted to ask uh, about this, right, the, the virtual side, um, what are some of the special considerations for people who are doing a either partially virtual uh, sock or a completely virtual sock that are not really problems that maybe had existed when we were all going into the office every day? Yeah, I'll tell you one that I'm dealing with a lot. Um, it turns out executives are really important. <laughs> yeah. uh, and what I have found is that if there's an incident happening and you're being asked to brief someone who knows how to brief executives need to be needs to be somewhere near that executive. So, you know, really think about that, you know, about uh, if you're partially virtual or you're hybrid or whatever you are, you need to be able to um, be near your stakeholders, be near um, some of your folks, at least some of your your, your more vocal and communicative uh, staff need to be able to brief and be around. And I can't stress the importance of it. It, it happens all the time right now, especially since COVID, because I've got people all over the country and I get this, well, who can go brief so-and-so? And it's like, well, it's in Colorado, California, and Boston. Yeah. So that's a real problem we're dealing with. I, I would also, I'm going to, this is going to be rare. I'm going to actually slightly disagree with Catherine or add an asterisk to it and say it's dependent upon the work remote culture of the executives, right? Um, so if your team, if your entire company is used to interacting with each other on Slack or Teams or whatever, or Zoom or what have you, then I think that's going to influence that situation as well. True. But what we're having is this COVID, people are coming back to the office. They're trying to yeah. get people back in. Uh, in a lot of different places and companies. So that's why we're running into this. So hopefully it's temporary. I like the remote. I like what Carson said. I want to go back to that. <laughs> yeah. One of the other things. What, oh, go ahead. I was just going to add, I think one of the things I've observed is it does change your onboarding. It does change, yeah. um, you know, if you've got folks that are maybe quieter, like as a, as a leader in a SOC organization, or even if you're a more senior person, or even, even if you're new, but you happen to be outgoing or something like that, it is is reaching out and communicating with people and making sure that there is time for non-work discussions. I mean, you no longer have mm -hmm. the, we're going to go to lunch together. You no longer have, you know, hey, let's go grab a coffee and ice cream after work, you know, whatever. So you have to be very deliberate in acknowledging that it can't just be all work. And that there are people that are just going, you're going to need to be more aggressive in reaching out to them. I said aggressive, and I don't mean that in a, an aggressive way, but like you need to be deliberate in reaching out to them. You need to make sure that they feel like they have um, people that they can turn to and places that you can engage. And that, you know, especially for, you know, analysts that are just, like, you're working through stuff all day. And it's very easy to just you and the technology to be the only things that are communicating with each other. And finding those ways to pivot and turn and make sure that your teams are getting ways to feel like a team. Um, and I would argue if your budget allows it, finding a time for people to get together physically, like in the same space is amazing. You know, so even if that's just once a year, when you bring the team together, you do a couple days, you maybe work through an exercise, you go to dinner together, you know, there's still something to be said for that. Um, but just figuring out how you can do it and how you can find those ways to communicate, I think is something that is 
um, especially since I work on a fully virtual team now, I'm really seeing uh, how we have to to shift how we engage with everybody. I, I, uh, I'm in violent agreement with what Ingrid just said. In fact, um, the importance of a sock coming together physically on some kind of cadence, I would actually argue increases exponentially as you add more cultures and time zones to the mixture in particular, one of the coolest aspects, in my opinion, of working in a follow the sun sock or a multi-region, multi-geo sock is actually flying to that other location and experiencing their culture and country. Because until you've had that experience, you're not seeing them as three-dimensional human beings as much as you will on the other end of a screen. And that can really bring a sock together, and that can really drive collaboration um, that you would not have through any other method. And even if you just do it once a year, it can be, it can really influence your effectiveness and efficiency in ways you're not thinking of. Yeah, I would agree with all of that 100%. Uh, again, I have also lived all of those things. We were doing Follow the Sun. We had the U.S. sock, the U.K. sock, and the sock in Poland. And it wasn't until we all actually met up and did some training together. I got sent on a business trip once over to Poland, got to see them, go to you know lunch with them and all that kind of stuff and like live that life for a couple of days. Like I really understood what it was like and who those people were in a much better way. And just it really opened up the you know clear lines of communication and collaboration uh, in a way that just was wasn't there before we all met each other. So um, 100%, right? If you can get the budget to do that, uh, awesome, awesome I'll, thing. I'll mention one more quick thing on that that goes back to your setup. In the United States, for example, most people take for granted the expectation and notion that we have a place in our home, be it an apartment, a flat, a single family residence, a townhome, et cetera, that is just for work. And that for some people in some living situations and in some countries is a very poor assumption. And it's only after talking to people outside that work that you start understanding some of these differences or understanding some of their, their home situations and their family care situations, et cetera. And that changes our assumptions, for instance, for their virtual setup or the working hours or the expectations on their lives. Or it's reasonable for them to be talking to them at 11 p.m. their time. Mm -hmm. Yep, 100%. And, uh, you know, the other thing I wanted to throw in there was um, even if you can't meet people, I, I meet some teams where, like, everyone is really good at, like, turning on the cameras, knowing each other personally. And I meet other teams where people is like, there's never a camera on and it's just like business talk off the meeting, right? And, uh, you know, my own kind of toss in here would be like, encourage people to like turn the cameras on and get to actually see the other humans they work with. If you can't get into like, you know, personal trips and other things kind of like that, getting everyone together, um, really anything to just kind of foster that, hey, there's another actual human with a full other life somewhere else on earth that I'm working with here and kind of get that sympathetic view of what they're doing and how they're doing it and what their life is like and all that uh, really big help in team cohesion, which just helps really everyone with everything. So, yeah. And one thing that hasn't changed in all the years that I've been doing this is that human to human connection is yep. irreplaceable. I think all of us have people that we just trust. We'll call and they're always right. It's like, okay, I got this problem. And you, you know, you run things by people. And so that human to human contact is just 
you know, so incredibly important. It's like we've been in trenches together. If you've been through some major incidents, you really bond with with the teammates on on things. And so and some of those are lifelong people that you you keep in contact with friends, even. <laughs> um, ab- absolutely. Um, that's actually one of the reasons why that, you know, that's been kept me going doing this long as I have is, is, is the bond that forms between people who have been involved in a major incident. Like if those who have been doing this, did this through solar winds, for example, think about the friends and experiences you had through solar winds and how that, that influenced it also. And we're going to talk about this when we get to incident response, um, looking out for each other, knowing what it's like for you or the people around you to get crispy and to tap out. And at the ninth day of working 12 hours, know like, I'm not thinking 100% right now. Um, and it's only after having that that bond that you really can understand, you know, what what's going on with the people around you. Yep. Well, that's probably a perfect place to uh, wrap this one up. So if we were going to summarize uh, the key pieces of this strategy that you really want people to consider and take home, uh, anyone want to take a crack at, at what should be the checklist in people's minds from this episode? I'm going to throw mine in. Mission context, you know, mm. uh, setting up your socks so that you get the bo- best uh, worlds to be able to get context across your organization and enterprise. I think I'd throw out know what your sock is chartered to do, understand what you have from a set of skills, and then identify how to best deploy them from both the organization, whether you need to outsource the other types of things. Like they, they all kind of fall under each other. Um, but you, you really need to evaluate what you're capable of. You know, you may have great aspirations, but I would say start with understanding where you really are at right now and then organize from that, that perspective. And I would, I would say, uh, making sure that you're structuring your your SOC organization, your functions, all the things that we've talked about in a way that maximize how quickly you can move through that uh, journey of both efficiency and effectiveness. Perfect. All right. Well, I think we'll end this one there. Uh, thank you again, everyone, for joining us. Uh, we are going to be back in the next episode with a thing that follows on very, very closely with this, which is hire and grow quality staff. So I'm really, really looking forward to that one. Had some spirited conversation here, and I'm sure we'll have some more about finding the right people to help join your team. Uh, but we're going to save that for the next episode. So for now, thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Blueprint.